Hello, and thank you for listening to another episode of the OCSHP podcast. My name is Herman Johannesmeyer, and I'm currently on the board of directors for the Orange County Society of Health Systems Pharmacists, and I'm one of the producers of the podcast. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it to the recording of this episode, but the podcast is coming back from a break over the last few months. We've got a few episodes in the pipe, including some clinical topics and more episodes within our Pharmacy Career Path series. Before we get into this episode, though, I'd like to ask you, the listener, to let us know how we're doing. We at the OCSHP podcast have noticed that most of the medical educational literature about the effect of med-ed type podcasts has either been done in physician populations or have assessed non-clinical outcomes. What we'd like to ask of you is to tell us how we're doing and how the podcast has affected your career and your patients. So if you have five minutes, please take a look at the link in the show description or on the OCSHP website to the studies survey. And if you submit a response, you'll have the option to enter your name into a drawing to win a $25 Amazon gift card. It's a win-win. So again, if you can please let us know how we're doing, we'd really greatly appreciate it. And now without further ado, let's hear about oral COVID antivirals. everybody. Welcome to the OCSHP podcast, episode 12, um, New Oral Medications for COVID-19. My name is Dr. Kevin Musavi. I'm an assistant professor at Marshall B. Ketchum University College of Pharmacy. And uh, unfortunately, I am writing solo today in regards to hosting duties. Um, Dr. Johannes Meyer had to step away, so I am going to be hosting alone. But I'm joined by three excellent panelists who will be introducing themselves in a few minutes. But just some housekeeping stuff before we get to those introductions and the kind of main content for today's episode. So the purpose of the OCSHP podcast is to provide useful, relevant content for practicing pharmacists, pharmacy students, technicians, and non-pharmacist healthcare providers, and allow our listeners to gain some insights on important topics related to pharmacy practices. So the purpose of today's episode is to talk about COVID-19 and two somewhat promising treatments for that uh, disease and illness. So over the past few years, COVID-19 has disrupted pretty much every aspect of every country in the world. Um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, has spread and mutated numerous times since the start of the pandemic, which has resulted in several infection surges, with the most recent surge being the Omicron surge, being a major burden to the healthcare system. Uh, major healthcare systems across the United States and the world. Many hospitals are overwhelmed due to the high amount of patients that require care, limited bed space, and hospitals themselves being understaffed. And although there are several safe, effective uh, vaccines with proof of protection against infection and infection severity, there's only for therapeutics to treat those that have become infected with the virus that causes COVID-19. And additionally, there is a special need for therapeutics that can be administered outside the hospital that can lower the risk of progressing to most severe COVID-19 that requires treatment in inpatient settings. In December 2021, there were two oral medications for treating outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19 that were approved under an emergency use authorization or an EUA by the FDA. And those medications were nermatovir and molnupiravir. And both are found to be significantly um, uh, effective at reducing the risk of hospitalization or death in non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19. So today we'll be focusing on those two medications, talk about how they may impact COVID-19 now and in the future. So let's meet our panelists. Uh, Dr. Garcia, can we start with you? 
Sure. Thanks for having us on, Kayvon. Um, so my name is uh, Joshua Garcia. I am also an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Marshall B. Ketchum University in Fullerton, California. Um, I did uh, my clinical residency, my first year and second year infectious disease residency at UCSF Hospital, um, and then came to Marshall B. Ketchum afterwards. Um, my current practice site is Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo, California. All right, Dr. Garcia, thanks so much for being here. And let's see, next one, that's uh, Dr. Nguyen. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Lee Nguyen. Uh, I'm an associate professor uh, of pharmacy practice at University of California, Irvine School of Pharmacy and Pharmacy School of Sciences. Similar to Josh, I was a graduate of UCSF, and I, for, but for my specialty training, I went to USC. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. And finally, Dr. Tan, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Karen Tan. I currently practice at Loma Linda University Medical Center as the Adult Infectious Diseases Clinical Pharmacy Specialist. I also serve as the Infectious Diseases Pharmacotherapy Fellowship Program Director. And I trained uh, for PGY2 and an ID fellowship at USC with Annie Wong Beringer. All right, Dr. Tan, again, thank you for being here. So let's get right to it. So let's start with a few questions to kind of get us kind of like in the mood for talking about these medications. So this will be for anyone, but uh, what is COVID-19? Yeah, so um, always an interesting question nowadays because I think that most viewers are now aware of what COVID-19 is, or at least the impact that it's having on all of us. So COVID-19 is an illness caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, which can have a variety of uh, different illnesses ranging from asymptomatic to critical illness and death. Um, essentially for uh, patients who are uh, suffering from COVID-19 can affect various organs and we've found that many times the uh, kind of more severe illnesses are uh, associated with an improper immune response or a cytokine storm found with a various number of different comorbidities in patients that are older, smoking, diabetes, and overall, like I said, I think nowadays everyone is very well aware of the impact that it's had on both our economic system and our healthcare system. You know, I just want to add um, one thing. I think initially a lot of people really think of it as something similar to the flu, but it's like a totally different virus. And, you know, for these past two years, I think become more aware of like our limitations in terms of our healthcare system and as well as our understanding of like the true impact of like new types of viral infections. Yeah, so it kind of brings us to our, uh, our next question. So, I mean, we're two plus years into this illness. How come it still continues to be such a burden on the uh, healthcare system? That's like a loaded question, by the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, I think it comes down to different aspects because there's, there's health disparities is one of them, right? Uh, it's one of the issues where not everyone actually have the same level of access to medication as well as therapies. Uh, their first response in terms of getting healthcare would be to the emergency department instead of actually in clinic, uh, or they may hold off seeing clinics because they're afraid of costs. And then at one point, at which point they would become so severely ill that they would start flooding in. But the fact that the virus itself is easily transmissible from person to person, it makes it uh, difficult in the sense that, you know, similar to what China is doing, the only way to really stop it for them was to shut down everything. You know, we took the path of vaccination, but the fact that it is airborne, it makes it very difficult for us to really contain it. 
Yeah, and and to add on to that, in the same family uh, for SARS, when SARS was a big, especially in China, um, one of the things that COVID um, and SARS-CoV-2 really has going for it is Dr. Nguyen mentioned was that it, it is very easily transmissible on a very um, either asymptomatic or a very mild case. The old school SARS was very easily able to be found and contained and, and made quarantining a lot easier. But now, especially with new variants that are more easily transmissible, it, I think it's, it's also increased the, the difficulty with containing this virus. Yeah, and I think in addition to containing it with its transmissibility, uh, thinking about how the virus is able to develop resistance to some of our existing agents that we are using to treat our patients with mild to moderate COVID, like our monoclonal antibodies, it is pushing us um, into the direction for needing alternative therapies that uh, are targeting different parts of the virus that may not be as uh, prone to mutating. Yeah, and then like kind of in regards to, to symptoms, um, no, I've kind of like heard this term, you know, long COVID, long hauling. Um, any kind of comments on that and how that may continue to impact our healthcare system? Uh, I'm going to go first. I, I think some of the issues is that a lot of it still is unknown. Uh, a lot of things that they're still trying to find out whether or not, you know, what are the specific risk factors, who's truly impacted, and is there is there an endpoint to it? And so a lot of it still is is not delineated well in terms of like the methodology of how we approach it, the treatment, the problem, the prevention, other than the fact that if you get vaccinated, you're less likely to get COVID and you're less likely to get long COVID. Yeah, so this is kind of a rhetorical question, but um, is COVID going to go away anytime soon? I, I'm hoping. <laughs> Not going <laughs> to yeah, lie. I think we're all very <laughs> hopeful. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I think all of us are kind of in that boat. Like, please just go away, COVID. But I don't know. It seems like this keeps coming back. Um, okay, so shifting gears a little bit, kind of focusing more on uh, on treatment. So, what do we currently have available for prevention and treatment of COVID nineteen? In terms of like prevention, it is is always the basics of you know getting vaccinated, good hand hygiene, social distancing, especially if you have. Um, if you're immunocompromised in type of conditions, uh, the, the different aspects is, is being, be more aware. We're absolutely more aware. And then we tend to wear masks and it becomes more socially acceptable to wear masks if you're uncomfortable in certain situations to minimize this airborne transmission. Uh, and also to add, uh, we also have a monoclonal antibody that is approved for pre-exposure prophylaxis in a niche population. Uh, so for our immunocompromised population, uh, we, they can receive a monoclonal antibody Evushield to hopefully prevent the acquisition of the infection. And then, of, of course, for anyone who has a more uh, severe form of COVID requiring hospitalization, oxygen, um, we do have other medications such as immune modulators like dexamethasone, tocilizumab, remdesivir, as well as our antiviral for things that are more inpatient, a little bit separate from, from I think, the two oral medications we'll be talking about today. Yeah, so Dr. Garcia, so with those, some of those, those medications that you mentioned, how are those, are those given? Are they like oral meds, um, injectables, a different route? Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. So the majority of those um, medications are mostly IV. And so therefore, um, as an outpatient procedure, something that kind of like Dr. Nguyen mentioned, part of the problem with COVID is, is accessibility to some medications. 
that can create a barrier, especially when we're, we're talking about um, prevention of progression to more severe diseases, but mostly IV formulation. So, I mean, we have an entire episode on this, or I'm you know, kind of already given away the answer, but I mean, are Matrovir, Molnupiravir, are these, should these be a big deal? I mean, what, who cares? I mean, why are these, uh, why did these get so much attention when they were first uh, kind of released under EUA, and why are they continuing to get so much attention? For us here at Loma Linda, uh, there was a lot of attention garnered to these two agents because the only other options that we had for the outpatient management of these uh, mild to moderate COVID were agents that had to be given through an IV infusion. So our monoclonal antibodies, um, for a hot second, we were also doing uh, trying to figure out how we can coordinate three days of remdesivir. So the availability of an oral agent uh, was really a paradigm change for us. We, uh, during peak times, our ED exploded. There was no room, uh, no chairs available. So a lot of our patients, we were trying to find makeshift infusion areas to give our patients the best treatment possible. So with the introduction of two oral agents, uh, we're able to potentially get these patients treated not only faster, but possibly an expand access to uh, treatment in patients who aren't close to uh, an emergency department. I, I want to add on to what Dr. Tan said. I think the one of the rationales for the attention really came from State of the Union when uh, the current president talked about tests to treat and how pharmacists are going to, you know, identify patients, have them tested for, for COVID, and then get them the treatment itself. And, and this is, has become like a major highlight in terms of like how the profession is evolving. And then I, I think to just add on one more thing, interestingly enough, so I think overall, and I, I might be bearing the lead here, but it is great to have two oral available anti-COVID medications. But I do know that at least among some of my circles, there is a, a potential hesitancy with the oral agents in the specific population that already has vaccine hesitancy, right? Some thoughts, and, and maybe some of why this got a little bit of attention, was saying that if, if patients now have an oral option, will they now push for not getting vaccines when maybe they should? Like I said, I think overall still, so a great option, and as Dr. Nguyen mentioned, something that I think can really help push our profession forward. Uh, but I do know that that's probably what attributed to the buzz as well. Like, will these patients now no longer try for getting vaccines uh, since there's an oral option. Yeah. So just like kind of stepping back in time a little bit, um, I mean, weren't there other oral treatments for COVID-19? And this is kind of more like kind of when the pandemic first started, probably like 2020. Uh, I mean, some drugs that come to mind, you know, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, Kaletra. I mean, were those ever shown to be safe or effective for treatment or prevention? <laughs> That's also kind of a rhetorical question. <laughs> I think it's, it has evolved. I think in the beginning phases of the pandemic, where we actually didn't know anything, everything was tried. And I think over the past two years, we found out that none of those agents, hydroxychloroquine, Kalitra, ivermectin, colchicine, has really made a true impact in terms of patient care. And so, so the fact that we have two actual agents that are effective is monumental. All right. So, all right. So let's talk about these new these new drugs. So, what is nirmatrelvir, and how does it work? So, nirmatrelvir is one part of the Paxlovid uh, agent that was FDA approved. The other component of that is norvir, 
and uh, nermatlavir is an active protease inhibitor. So um, importantly, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 genome encodes um, two polyproteins, which get cleaved by the main protease. And these two proteins are essential for viral replication. So now nermatlavir works by reversibly targeting this main protease of COVID-19, which luckily is very highly conserved. And this will be important when we're thinking about potential development of resistance from variants in the future. So by by blocking this main protease, the polyprotein precursors are now unable to be processed into functional units and ultimately will inhibit uh, protein replication. And where ritonavir plays a role is that it slows the CYP3A metabolism so boosting the uh, nomatlavir uh, co- concentrations. And then what about the uh, the other one, uh, molnupiravir? Um, is that uh, similar, different? Yeah, so molnupiravir works in a slightly different way. So molnupiravir is a nucleoside analog, so differently from Paxlovid, does not inhibit proteases, but instead integrates itself into, sorry, is a, is a prodrug of N-hydroxycytidine, and when phosphorylated, um, incorporates itself into the viral DNA causing misreplication. This misreplication doesn't allow for um, the virus to continue to be infectious or continue to reproduce, and so therefore stops the replication of the virus. So it works in, in a slightly different way. So I guess uh, just kind of next question going along with mechanism is, um, so we kind of mentioned this before, so there's several variants and there's probably going to continue to be more variants of uh, SARS-CoV-2, is it thought that these oral medications, uh, nermatrovir, molnupiravir, will they retain efficacy against current or future variants? So if I may, I'm going to try to answer this one. I think some of the issues that comes into play is that um, we only know their efficacy based on historical and then uh, the theoretical probability of them becoming resistant in the future is low based on how these drugs work that the Merck agent is definitely has a higher possibility because, you know, it's trying to incorporate the medication to prevent the virus from replicating. It's similar to other antivirals. Resistance do occur, and the resistance also occurs for Paxlovid in terms of, like, the mechanisms for, like, HIV meds. It does occur. It just doesn't occur quickly. Uh, it does take time. But it's one of those things where, at this point, of how they're being introduced and how often they're used, the likelihood of them being resistant is really low uh, based on the different variants. I think uh, only time will tell in terms of like how truly efficacious they are. Yeah, and I think what the data that we have now, at least against our circulating Omicron strains, is it looks like the IC50s, so the viral equivalent of like an MIC, remains low. So they in vitro data suggests that these two oral agents should retain activity against the uh, Omicron variants. Uh, and I like to think um, about resistance looking at what changes are occurring over time. So at least um, at this time point, it looks like the Omicron had multiple mutations in spike protein, which is what our monoclonal antibodies go after. It, only time can tell what our future variants will look like and where the mutations occur. But Luckily for now, uh, these two oral agents have gone after more conserved regions uh, found in the coronavirus. So keeping our fingers crossed that um, they will retain as much efficacy as they can for uh, for the time being. 
Yeah, which leads us to always, as, as everyone's already said, kind of proceeding with, with caution. Because um, I think that Dr. Tan and Dr. Nguyen, uh, like myself, when, when things have uh, in vitro data, we know that that doesn't always play out clinically, especially with viruses as new strains and resistances come up. And if, if there's ever been an infectious disease field that has been changing uh, quickly, it, it has been COVID-19. I, I think, right. by the way, I just want to make the plug. This is why infectious disease is great. Because not only <laughs> yes, agreed. Not <laughs> do the therapies change, but the virus change and this process of understanding and developing new therapies and what's best for patients, it, it ever is evolving. It's ever evolving. Every day is fun and different. <laughs> so consider ideas a specialty, please. <laughs> yeah. Current pharmacists, students, future grads. Yeah, I do. All the way. Although I am a little biased towards like emergency medicine and critical care because that's my background. But <laughs> I do school too. Um, okay, so getting kind of into the uh, what someone might consider to be the boring stuff. Um, I mean, do we have what data do we have regarding the efficacy and safety of uh, dermatrovir? So I think uh, currently uh, we have one big study that was published um, in New England Journal of Medicine um, referred to as the EPIC-HR study. So these two oral agents, actually the study design is pretty similar in that they're both multinational, multi-centered, um, randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trials, specifically for the Paxlovid trial this was a study that was conducted from July to December of 2021. The primary efficacy outcome that we were looking at in this study was looking at COVID-related hospitalizations or death from any cause up to day 28. Importantly, um, looking at the study population for these trials is that they're looking at non-hospitalized symptomatic adults. For this specific trial, we were looking at having symptoms within five days um, to presentation, as well as uh, laboratory-confirmed uh, SARS-CoV-2. And then finally, the last important part of the study population is that they also had to have at least one risk factor for progressing to severe disease, because these oral agents, the purpose of them are really to prevent that progression. So keeping you from being hospitalized or even worse, uh, dying from uh, the, the disease. So um, here from this study, they found that there was a relative risk reduction of almost 90%. So they dichotomized uh, the, the findings into two groups. So if these patients presented early, so within three days or less of symptom onset, the chance of uh, reducing the risk for progression was 88.9%, so roughly an 89% reduction. And if that uh, presentation was extended to five days or less, similar numbers. So they reported 87.7%, but really in the ballpark of almost 90% chance to uh, reduce your chance of progressing to a severe disease requiring hospitalization. So that was the efficacy data that they reported. And then for the safety data, they looked at all patients who received at least one dose of Paxlovid. And they found that the incidence of adverse events was very similar between the two groups. Notably, some of the side effects that they reported, dyspusia, 6% versus less than 1%, and placebo, low rates of diarrhea, so 3% versus 2%, 
So overall, it looks like tolerability-wise um, and adverse effect, uh, effects that were reported um, were pretty low. And I think the last thing to point out was that in this study, there were a total of uh, 13 deaths, and they all occurred in the placebo arm. So based on trial, it sounds like it's pretty effective and fairly safe, correct? Yes, based off the relative risk reduction, its efficacy was very comparable to our monoclonal antibodies that we were giving um, as an infusion, as well as a three-day duration of remdesivir. But uh, more to come when we talk about the drug-drug interaction section of uh, how uh, we can uh, think about this medication. For oh, yeah. That's probably one of like, kind of the major <laughs> issues to consider. Absolutely. Um, so, so what about with uh, molnupiravir? Um, any uh, data regarding the efficacy and safety of that agent? Actually, can we take a step back um, yeah, yeah, to, totally. to the Paxivid? I, I think one of the aspects is that when you're looking at the studies, the, the actual patient population that has a true benefit, you can kind of see that those yeah. over the age of 65 is key, and those who actually have the SARS-CoV-2 serology negative seems to have like a greater effect com in comparison to like the generalized population. And so that's one of the things that, that needs to be highlighted so we can definitely identify, you know, who would this be best benefit? I mean, this will benefit definitely everyone who needs it, but those who have the, the largest benefit are the, those older patients who were uh, negative in serology itself. That's a great point, Dr. Nguyen. And I think also for both studies, um, Epic HR and the upcoming study that we'll talk about, when we look at what is that risk factor that was included to put them at higher risk for progression? It looks like the bulk of it is our patients who are obese with a BMI of either greater than 25 or 30, depending on which study we're talking about. Yeah, and for those who are curious, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was kidding. I need to start dieting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, for those that are, are curious, um, kind of to what like Dr. Wynn and Tan are talking about, um, like if you look at the actual like study itself, they have a uh, fairly detailed subgroup analysis, and that's kind of what they're referring to when they're talking about like different groups having uh, different levels of benefit from the drug. Uh, but yeah, it seems like pretty much everyone benefited from it. Like I don't think there were any uh, trends towards harm or kind of like significant harms that were uh, observed with thermatol uh, administration. So how about molnupiravir? Uh, what data do we have? I think for now, um, there's also um, a study. I believe the study is, uh, the study is called the Move Out uh, Trial. So again, very similar study design, looking at the same primary efficacy endpoint where we're um, looking at hospitalization or death. But one minor detail is that here we're looking at all cause for hospitalization versus in the prior study, uh, they looked at COVID-specific hospitalization. So while looking at the same uh, endpoint, unfortunately, we're not, it looks like the benefit is not as great as we were seeing with Paxlovid or the monoclonal antibodies where the relative risk reduction was closer to 30% meaning that if you were to take molnupiravir um, to prevent progression to severe disease, you'd have a 30% benefit compared to taking nothing uh, at all. And uh, just to cover um, safety endpoints, again, also looks like a well-tolerated medication. Uh, the overall um, incidence of adverse effects were, um, were not too different between uh, treatment and placebo arms. I just want to add one aspect to it in terms of um, how the, the study design 
was laid out in terms of like they're both multinational studies. Uh, the one from Pfizer was actually a lot of it was in the U.S. and European countries versus the, the Merck agent actually is more global in, inside South America and stuff like that, too. And so th- we have to take into account the fact that they have different health systems and not every country actually has access to clinics for them to come in. And so their first reaction uh, maybe just to go straight to the hospital for therapy type of scenarios. And so, so that's the key aspect where, yes, they, this agent may not seem as effective in terms of overall rates, but there could be other aspects too in terms of like, you know, the rationales behind it. Now that we've kind of touched on both um, other things to, to continue to consider, and, and we talked about this already, is that there's a, there's a lack of clinical efficacy for, um, or clinical data for efficacy for both of these agents for our current Omicron subvariants, um, because if, uh, just to give everyone context, so these both of these trials were done in the last quarter of last year before Omicron was really the dominant strain, and before BA2 was really the even more dominant strain as of I think this uh, time recording. So that's really where we're we're also taking into consideration, um, like we mentioned before, we have in vitro data to suggest that these uh, agents should still retain efficacy, but to know that this was taken, again, uh, just last year, but a very different uh, type of setting than what we're in now. So do we have any, like, head-to-head comparisons of these agents yet? Not at this time. Nothing that I'm aware of or anything that's planned. So for now, I think because the study designs are similar, we're looking at relative risk reduction, but taken with a grain of salt since these are each study has its own unique uh, patient population. So the second thing I was going to mention is I am hoping that moving forward, we're not going to have any sort of data at all because no one's going to have COVID anymore. That's the hope. And that's mm-hmm. yes, fingers crossed. But I think time will tell in terms of as we transition to test and treat moving forward, um, similar to last year with the different surges in you know late summer, as well as uh, end of the year, we, we may actually have better information on this aspect. Right. And, and although there, there are no uh, head-to-head studies, I do know that, that various guidelines have, because um, of what Dr. Tan mentioned, because of the uh, greater relative risk reduction of Paxlovid, um, some guidelines have placed it above milnipavir in terms of their recommended treatment. But it, if you look at it again, they're, they're reducing risk of hospitalization and death. The numbers are, I think, between like 6% and 3%, so, so overall pretty small. And again, taking into context uh, what type of subvariant we're doing and also into the fact that when looking at the general population, all of these patients were not vaccinated and had risk factors. So I, I think that it, it'll be interesting is to see um, in terms of comparison, maybe not necessarily efficacy, but really I think the decision will be made along specific patient-specific uh, factors as well as drug-drug interactions, uh, specifically with Paxlovid. So, um, okay, so I just kind of like summarizing all like the the big data to support like in each of these studies. Like now it's going to get into like, well, if you want to use them, how would you actually go about doing that? So kind of like speaking more to like the EUAs that the FDA has granted to each of these agents. So um, at this moment, like who is allowed to um, get a prescription for either drug, Paxlovid or or Lunapiravir? I think uh, anybody can go to their physician or primary care provider to get a prescription for either of the agents. Uh, I, I think, as Dr. Tan alluded to before, it's the discussion of, like, you know, who should be using which agent because, you know, similar to most medications, they're not 100% safe. Um, th- there are problems that may occur, whether through drug interactions or other side effects. 
and I think the only thing that I'll also add on is because um, both of these trials really looked at initiating therapy within five days, that's that's also the symptom onset that most providers who are prescribing are also looking at. So rather than looking at like late onset, we're really looking at early onset within five days. You know, we didn't need a discussion on that aspect because the realism of someone's like, oh, I think I have COVID, <laughs> getting tested and then getting to a healthcare provider right away to have that confirmed test or getting a prescription and then finding a pharmacy that actually has the medications there's a high probability that most people, especially those who have like um, underrepresented minorities with like health disparities, aren't going to get it within that first five day time frame. Yeah, definitely. I think that's kind of why like the Biden administration was talking about like kind of the test to treat because, you know, that kind of makes more sense. You're kind of cutting out some of those extra steps. You just go to your clinic or pharmacy, get tested there. If you're positive, here's your prescription filled. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we're really at that point yet, but. We'll talk about that a little, a little bit uh, more later, but that would definitely cut out some of those uh, barriers that may be in place for, for a lot of us. Just one more question. Um, so um, can pediatric patients take either of these medications? Uh, no. So there are two different age cutoffs that are authorized for uh, these agents for Paxlovid. Uh, it is currently authorized for um, patients who are at least 12 years old or weigh 40 kilograms. And for molnipivir, it's authorized for adults who are at least 18 years and older. So what if someone gets, uh, they get a prescription, but they end up still having to go to the hospital? Are they still allowed to continue that while they're kind of being treated in that setting? I guess it comes down to why are they being hospitalized? I mean, if they're going to the hospital for a heart attack, I think they should be treated for the heart attack. Sorry, I'm just joking. You guys can't tell on on the podcast. But I'm totally just joking. Um, but in the, the aspect of if they're being treated for COVID and being hospitalized for COVID in terms of the severity has switched from mild to moderate to more of a severe, they should probably transition to other therapies. Yeah. So um, under the EUA, I, I can't remember. Like I, you're allowed to continue, right? Like say you were you got through three days of treatment, so you still have two more days while you're in the inpatient setting. I believe you're allowed to continue it, right? Uh, yeah, you just will communicate with your primary team or admitting provider that you are on these agents and based off that discussion, determine whether or not you'll want to complete uh, your course in-house. So what's like the actual, uh, what are the actual dosing regimens for uh, both these medications? So for Paxlovid, Paravir, like how do you, how do you actually take them? So both medications are oral agents. Um, you, you take them uh, twice a day. And I believe the, the Paxlovid has three tablets in the morning and three tablets at night compared to Lenupavir, which has four, I believe, four capsules twice daily or five days total. Um, do you have to like, take them with food, without food? Are you allowed to crush them, say if it's hard for you to swallow you know, that many tablets per day? I don't think yeah. there's any dietary restrictions. But, but Josh, Dr. Garcia. Oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, exactly right. Uh, no um, no dietary restrictions can be taken with or without food. The Paxlovid um, does have uh, better absorption with, with a high-fat meal as well. I think this is where we have to have that discussion of the high-fat meal and the BMI greater than, than 25. <laughs> they, <laughs> they do seem to fight each other. Yeah, what do you do? Which one? <laughs> All right. And we already talked about a little bit about these uh, uh, 
I guess, kind of more uh, adverse effects or other like warnings, contraindications uh, with, with Dr. Tan. And she already kind of mentioned a few of these, especially the drug interactions with uh, Paxlovid. But um, kind of what are some key things to remember in regards to like adverse effects, warnings, contraindications for each one of these meds? I think one of the first things is that who better than to go into your pharmacist to look for drug interactions, right? Because we have a lot of the profiles and we understand the different interactions that may occur through the cytochrome uh, 3A4 system. Um, but there are certain medications that have a low therapeutic window, um, medications that are like anticoagulants, like a, a Pixaban or amiodarone that can have toxicities, which may occur. Um, but it's those aspects where uh, it is really person-to-person -person dependent in terms of what medications they take, especially if they're taking other HIV meds, you know, what should we do if they are taking it? Because most people can take HIV meds together with Paxlovid, but it comes down to the different regimens that really would impact it. So does that, does Monopirvir, does that one have uh, drug interactions as well? Or is it just uh, Paxlovid? Oh. I don't believe, Dr. Tim. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, for now, only Paxlovid um, and the current uh, EUA that's approved um, in March for Molnipivir has no drug-drug interactions listed at this time. Uh, so, yes, we're still waiting to see if other drug interactions will occur uh, as we start using more and more of the agents. Uh, but currently, there there is none. So with, uh, so with Paxlovid, so um, Dr. Tan, you said some of the adverse effects that were reported in the trials, like the uh, dyskusia or like altered taste, um, diarrhea, incidence was pretty low, but those did seem to occur a little more frequently versus uh, placebo and uh, drug interactions with uh, Paxlovid. So it seemed to kind of be like the major issues to consider. Correct. So is Molnupiravir, I mean, are there any issues with that one? Because it sounds like that one's uh, it doesn't have drug interactions, adverse effects are also low and fairly mild. Like wouldn't that maybe be like a better agent for most people? So one of the things that we want to consider um, is uh, that there is a warning for embryo fetal toxicity. And so in animal models, they found that when giving higher than uh, currently approved doses of monopirvir, um, it resulted in um, some uh, in animal models. There was um, death, teratogenicity, as well as reduced birth weight. Um, and there's also was uh, observed uh, bone and cartilage toxicity in animal models, too. Uh, so currently, the recommendation is that for um, all females uh, of childbearing age, uh, they should receive a pregnancy test unless they are currently using an IUD. They have some contraceptive treatment. Um, all females should use a reliable method of contraception for the duration of treatment, as well as four days after their last dose of molnupirvir. And on the male side, uh, they're still doing, there's ongoing um, animal um, non-clinical studies, um, but currently the recommendation is to use a reliable method of contraceptive for at least three months after the last dose of molnupirvir. So three months after dose, which is um, very interesting. And I'd be, I'm curious to see uh, the ongoing animal data, what that may show. Actually, when, when I read that too, I was thinking to myself, was, oh my gosh, I'm not sure <laughs> how many people will be able to use contraceptive correctly for the three months during that process. <laughs> right. Yeah, major counseling point. All right. So we did kind of talk a little bit about like drug, drug um, and a little bit about drug 
I guess, disease interactions, but are there any other drug disease interactions to be aware of? I think Paxlovid has issues with uh, for patients with renal impairment. And so there's you need to have like dose reductions for patients who have uh, poor renal function. But I don't think other than that, I don't think there was anything else. No, I, I think that you're correct. I think it's really just Paxlovid. One one notable thing is that I think there's a dose reduction at an EGFR of less than 60 and then contraindication at EGFR less than 30. Yes. Yes. And then there's also um, patients with severe hepatic disorders should not be on the Paxlovid either. Yep. Yep. So it does kind of sound like neither one of these agents is perfect. So it seems like Paxlovid uh, may be more effective than Molnupiravir, but some other issues to worry about. Adverse effects, drug interactions, drug disease interactions, um, and then Molnupiravir, kind of like pregnancy, kind of baby-related issues, and there's kind of other like adverse effects. So yeah, just some stuff for, I guess, providers to consider. Like neither one is quite perfect, but you might have to kind of pick and choose based on what situations you have in front of you. So I think we already kind of mentioned this a little bit as well. So is it easy to prescribe and dispense uh, either of these medications? And again, we're recording this in March of 2022, so things may change in the future. But at this moment, like, is it easy to prescribe and dispense either one of these medications? I think it's, it's relatively easy to prescribe in terms of dispense. It used to be very difficult to get, but I believe that there are more and more pharmacies carrying it. Not all pharmacies carry it. They'll most likely have like a specific pharmacy in that either chain um, or or company, and they'll they'll regionalize it so they'll carry the bulk, essentially all of the, the medications, and they'll divert most patients to like a single location. It's more of a cost-effective model, um, and it's also that they're probably going to have uh, more pharmacists that are more trained to identify the drug-drug interactions and give better patient counseling. Right. I, I agree. Definitely easy to dispense or easy to prescribe. I'm getting easier to dispense, but difficult. As as of March 29, 2022, I, I stopped by the local pharmacy near my house and just asked if they had either of them. They they currently do not, but but hopefully soon they will. Yeah, and I think just to add to that, some barrier, um, barriers we had um, for at least prescriber education that we've uh, worked through here just making sure that uh, our prescribers knew about the EUA and what that symptom cutoff was of from presentation to um, pre, um, to coming to the ED, so falling within that five-day window, um, and then making sure they're identifying the correct candidates because not all patients who have a positive test qualify for uh, this therapy. They need to make sure that they also have at least one risk factor for progression uh, and then uh, really educating our providers about um, identifying drug-drug interactions with Paxlovid, providing them accurate resources to be able to screen and also uh, get that conversation going with the patient to obtain an accurate med list. Sometimes that's a major barrier too. what we have documented on our EHR is not truly what they're taking. And then I think to comment on the dispensing part, I thought it was really interesting to learn that um, Paxlovid takes, at least uh, for now, takes significantly longer to produce than Molnupiravir. I read somewhere that the initial building blocks of Paxlovid actually takes up to three months to make, which is like their starting protein. And then from there, initially, why production was much slower than Molnupiravir is that they didn't have one centralized place to make Paxlovid. They were shipping it to multiple countries 
And I think they initially anticipated producing way more than they did. I think right now it's taking about nine months to produce an adequate stock. They're trying to shave down the time by partnering with multiple sites to cut down this production time and keep up with what was promised. Um, but I just thought that was interesting that in terms of production time, Paxlova takes much longer to actually um, to make. I also want to ask a comment. I was reading one of the news outlets that, that talks about like um, they're actually contracting more and more places to make uh, Paxlovid and, and China yeah. is one of the big buyers of it. And so that's also one of the reasons why we may see less of it within the U.S. But I think one of the things that when I first heard about it and one of the things that I first thought about it would be very similar to hydroxychloroquine, where I think people are, are getting the medication and hoarding it to save it in the future because mm. it, it's just it's just a dry product that and then it's an antiviral. Right now, the census is low for people with COVID inside hospitals. But they're, you know, one of the things that people do is they're like, I just want to get it, save it, just in case I need it in the future. And I think that's one of the problems that we'll see. And it's one of the reasons why we do have these health disparities. Yeah, I remember um, kind of like in my earlier practice days, that was always like an issue that would come up. It was because, I mean, we're like in the era of shortages. I mean, not just for like COVID meds, but for like everything. So it, Often it would kind of come. So I used to work at kind of like a larger, you know, medical center. Um, and so we had access to things that maybe smaller places didn't. Um, and so there were times where we were kind of keeping stuff that may have limited our ability of other places to get it. So that was definitely like a, an issue um, that would come up. So kind of looking into the future. So assuming that all these supply issues get resolved and everyone could get these medications when they need them and there's no need for like delays or waiting. How do you foresee each of these being used for COVID in the future? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the sense that, uh, I don't know. I think that it's essentially going to come down to those who have risk factors for severe COVID as part of those who would benefit the most. You know, the diabetic patients, the larger BMIs, people with um, cardiac disease, Immunal compromise that can easily shift from mild moderate to severe very quickly would get the the most benefit, but we technically won't we won't know like who's actually using it until we actually have higher cases and how it's being used because right now we have a larger supply than demand because of the overall rate of COVID in the U.S. And I think as we move forward, and and this is something that within infectious disease is always something that we're trying to do better at. Um, we do very well with studies inpatient. Um, and looking at how our patient population does with new antibiotics, new antivirals done inpatient. But once uh, there, there's kind of a dearth of studies looking at outpatient procedures. So that being said, I feel like moving forward, what I, what I would hope for both of these medications is that, like Dr. Nguyen said, we can really put a place in therapy on them, have them there for the patients that are at higher risk. But then at the same time, I guess I'm also wondering in the future, like, how do we get this data? How are we going to look at it? Um, because outpatient infectious disease studies are really something that we're needing in the community. Yeah, I know the question was to look forward, but my colleague actually shared a really interesting Wall Street Journal article with me um, that looked at prescribing rates up to February of this year. And I'm not sponsored. Uh, I have nothing to disclose. But to be completely honest, I thought there was going to be more Paxlovid use over Molnipravir, just based purely off um, efficacy, where we're seeing a better relative risk reduction with Paxlovid treatment. 
But what I thought was interesting was that actually the prescribing rates of Paxlovid and Milnipravir actually were very similar, where it was closer to like a one-to-one ratio. And I found that very fascinating. And uh, they kind of touched on, you know, hypothesizing why this may be. Is this a production issue where the supply was just not there? Or is it that some of our frontline providers who may not have a pharmacist with them in the primary care setting, they don't have a clinical pharmacist, maybe in their ED, they don't have a clinical pharmacist where they can run through like, hey, there's a drug-drug interaction. Is this relevant to my patient versus providers who are slammed and have a heavy clinic load, uh, their ED, urgent care is super busy. Do they really have the time to try to figure out how to use this Liverpool drug-drug interaction checker? Oh, no, something turns like there's an interaction. Is it is it significant? I don't know. So it, perhaps it's these uh, also a provider preference where they see that there's an issue, um, but they don't know how to tease through that, whether it's clinically relevant to their patient or not. Um, so I just found that to be um, really interesting, too, that the at least for now, the utilization seems to actually be pretty similar, where, where we thought were technically the NIH lists Molnupivir as an alternative agent. So you think there'd be less use, but as of February 2022, that's actually not the case. Yeah, definitely that production aspect of of making Paxlovid is coming into play. Yeah, and you guys both bring up like a pretty good segue to like our next uh, issue, which you've already kind of alluded to a few times, but um, is definitely worth discussing um, in a little more detail here. Um, Dr. Wentz, you mentioned... um, the uh, test-to-treat kind of initiative that the Biden administration introduced um, in early uh, March 2022. Um, and again, just to summarize, basically the plan was you go to a place, a clinic, a pharmacy, you get tested. If you're positive, you get a prescription for a medication to treat COVID-19, Paxlovid, Pirivir. So that was kind of the plan. But shortly after the American Medical Association released a statement and it got a good amount of publicity, um, some of it it's kind of neutral, some of it more negative. Um, but basically, they were they were saying that pharmacy-based clinics, if they were allowed to do that, which is basically test to treat, it would compromise patient safety and risk negative safety outcomes because they said that drug interactions, uh, having to hold or change medications was kind of outside the scope of these clinics. And again, they said pharmacy-based clinics, not pharmacists specifically, but generally those working in these pharmacy-based clinics are probably, you know, NPs, PAs, and probably pharmacists as well. So uh, what are your general thoughts on that statement? I mean, is the American Medical Association right here? I mean, are they right to say, let's just reserve prescribing um, of medications to physicians or are there other providers that may be qualified to deal with some of the practical issues? I categorically disagree in the sense that who who else but pharmacists can identify drug-drug interactions better? We have a lot of the medications inside the database within the pharmacy, and just off the bat, when you name specific medications through our training, we would recognize which drugs have it. Then the easiest aspect to really think about, too, is like if you have a patient that has medications that you can't even check, but you're afraid of drug interactions, there are two options. One, one of them does not have any drug interactions at all, and it has efficacy. And so that's the easiest way for us to to say, if you have any sort of like doubt about what type of medications are on, you know, you can use the, the Merck agents. If you don't, actually, it's going to really come down to availability of either agent. Let's just be honest. I think the whole aspect is if you even have the agent available to dispense for test to treat. And then the second aspect is if you have the agent, should you dispense it? And depending on their profile, 
And, and so, but like I said, who best to identify drug-drug interactions than a pharmacist? Yeah, I, I feel like uh, we've been chomping at the bit to get to this point, but mm. um, but that being said, yeah, I, I, I remember the uh, AMA release statement. I, I was disappointed with that statement as well, but um, you know, Dr. Nguyen mentioned it before, uh, the practicality of being able to get in that five-day window for efficacy for both medications severely limited if um, you don't have kind of the ability to test to treat. It can be difficult enough uh, for most patients to be able to get uh, time off, get a test, uh, then have to try to schedule a doctor's office. Many people don't even have PCPs, and especially in different healthcare disparities, um, different socioeconomic disparities, um, people may not have that kind of access. And so, again, that's a tight window of, of five days to be able to get this medication in, especially in those high-risk patient populations. So um, I, I, I do wish that the um, kind of uh, feelings for the AMA, AMA were a little bit different because, like Dr. Nguyen said, who else better to, to manage drug-drug interactions and, and medications as a pharmacist? Yeah, um, and there's also quite a bit of evidence saying that pharmacists, again, not just for COVID specifically, but for other uh, populations or disease states, um, pharmacists are really good at managing, managing complex patients that may have drug interactions, drug disease interactions, just a variety of different medical conditions that all require you know, some level of treatment right now, for example, in intensive care units. So there's already quite a bit of evidence saying that pharmacists can do this, and they do it well, and they help to reduce costs in like, the healthcare system. So, yeah, definitely agree um, um, with you guys in saying that yeah, who better than, than us to help kind of manage this situation. Um, so, so, yeah, definitely agree with you on, on that point. Kevin, let me add some other aspects to it, too. It also comes down to specific locations, right? Because it's one of the issues that I had with test to treat well, my concerns is that the, the, the workflow itself for standard pharmacy operations that are occurring, because, you know, pharmacies aren't, just there just to do test and treat, but they're doing, you know, vaccinations. They're dispensing other medications, doing counseling, do over, doing over-the-counter products. And so these are the aspects where I, I think it requires the correct scenario and setup in terms of, like, manpower for that to become successful. I'm not advocating that the all pharmacies are, should do it. You know, I mean, it's possible. It would be great if it, they could, but I think the issue itself is that we have so many other responsibilities uh, just adding on this extra one could be very disastrous, but we need to set up pharmacists to make sure that they are become successful. So not all pharmacies should do it, especially if those who have other workload limitations. Yeah, and definitely speaking from kind of more like kind of personal uh, practice experience, I mean, there are settings kind of outside of traditional retail pharmacies where pharmacists are allowed to manage uh, complex situations. Anticoagulation clinics, for example, that's a, that's a pretty popular one that you'll probably see throughout the U.S., HIV clinics as well, where the pharmacist is not the only provider, but they are, they typically have like a major role in helping to choose, adjust, you know, switch to something else that might be better or more effective. Um, so this might also require like kind of a change in what we think or uh, how pharmacists are practicing. It might require like kind of a general mindset shift for uh, how the public can abuse the role of the pharmacist, because you're right, not all of us are in retail pharmacies. If we're not in retail pharmacies, Maybe able to kind of increase accessibility to certain groups of people. So, just wondering, um, just to kind of wrap it up, um, are there any kind of like good uh, references or resources that those can look to, like if they're looking for information on um, uh, dermatovir or molnupiravir? 
I think a great resource to start off with is the FDA website. Um, with COVID, things change um, day by day. So I think referencing the FDA website for the most up-to-date EUAs and any statements, uh, they'll all be posted there. And in addition to that, for our pharmacists who are interested in checking out the resource to look at drug-drug interactions, the University of Liverpool worked on creating the COVID-19 drug interaction.org, uh, and that is a comprehensive, great resource to double-check DDIs. And I, th- and I also will plug um, for if our pharmacists who want to learn more about COVID or ID as a whole, SIDP also provides a lot of great uh, resources and information for COVID as well. Yeah, and their uh, Twitter account is awesome. Yeah, very, very useful, and they're just constantly putting out, like, good content, so... We'll also plug SIDP. All right. So I think that's all the questions I have for each of you. Um, any final thoughts, closing arguments, any of that from any of you? Uh, no, but I'd like to thank you for having us on. Uh, we appreciate it. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure. It's fun. Yeah, thank you. Yes, thank yeah, you thank so you. much. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Stan, Garcia, Wynn, thank you so much for being here um, and kind of joining us on this uh, this conversation, providing some clarification. Uh, and I'm sure these meds are going to get a lot more attention in the future. So glad you're, you were able to kind of help lay out all the important information for us. All right. So I think that wraps it up for us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.